Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. Bavarian Motor Works, or in its native tongue, Bayerisch Motoren Verka AG, commonly referred to as BMW, is a German multinational corporation which produces luxury vehicles and motorcycles. Founded in 1916 as a manufacturer of aircraft engines, BMW is now one of the most common track cars you'll see on any given weekend. And that's right, Donovan. So we've hinted many a time on Break Fix that we were going to have a BMW episode, but it took us a while to find the right people to have this episode with. And so joining me tonight is reoccurring guest on the Break Fix podcast, Donovan Lara, CEO of Garage Riot, and BMW aficionado, as well as returning guest, James Clay, president of Bimmer World, to unpack the mystery in the world of BMWs for all of our listeners out there. So gentlemen, both of you, welcome to Break Fix yet again. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll tell you, it's no mystery. BMW is just the most awesome manufacturer out there. So I don't want to shortcut the process, but you know, I'll <laughs> they, go. I'll go right there. They do tout themselves as the ultimate driving machine. That was the ad campaign for a long time, and I think that's a great way to lead into this. So why BMW? What is all the fuss about? There always seems to be this allure and this mystique around BMW. Isn't it just another? German taxi cab, like a Mercedes or anything else that's underrated overseas. So let's talk about it. Well, I'll tell you, I've been in Audis for commercial shoots, some of the stunt driving in those cars. I've done that. I've owned Porsches and I still own a Mercedes currently. And my first experience with a German car was my girlfriend of, of a long time ago's Volkswagen. Um, See, I just so, want to point out, it all starts with Volkswagens at some point. <laughs> right, which is pretty much a Porsche, right? Same thing. <laughs> so, you know, immediately with that car, it was a Volkswagen Jetta and like uh, second or third gen of those things. It, there was definitely something different. And, and that was that was my first experience with a German car. There was definitely something different about about the German cars. And, you know, there's there's ranges, there's target markets. And, you know, clearly the, the Volkswagen was more economical than than a bmw at that point i was a i was a college kid and had some student loans that i spent frivolously and including on cars or a car so i had a little bit of money to spend and at that point i was looking for something that was was a performance car for me that meant you know i wanted a german car i clearly knew i wanted a german car because i'd worked on a number of cars at that point and they were just the easiest to deal with they were well laid out they just made sense easy to work on okay i wanted a german car and i wanted a performance car so that kind of meant Porsche or BMW. And as luck would have it, I almost got swept into the dark hole of Porsche ownerships, which would have been a terrible experience based on the Porsche I was buying at the time, because I was still a college kid and I did not have money for that. Yes. So let me, let me guess a 944. No, no. Really? Yeah. No, way dumber than that. It was a 1998 roof 911, Ooh. but it was affordable because it was a basket case. So I was going to buy it and put it together. That was where the black hole comes from. But ah. you know, now in my, in my later years, I, I recognize that would have been a black hole, no matter how that car had arrived, just because Porsche ownership is more expensive. You know, I did end up with a BMW and kind of the rest is history, but after owning other cars and, you know, I, I'm primarily a BMW guy, but that's, that's all I really drive, all I really own. 
after having experience with and owning a couple of, of other things, I will say that BMW really does hit the perfect balance of German car, German engineering, performance car, cost effective, but not so luxury. And you can infer whatever you want from those comments and as to what other brands they might apply to. But for me, BMW, it just is that perfect mix of all the things. Donovan. Yeah. You know, I think for me, you know, I, I did kind of grow up as a Porsche guy, you know, as a kid, I, I seem to always have Porsche cars and toys and models and things. And I remember I was probably, gosh, I don't know, 10 years old and, and a neighbor had a, uh, gosh, it was like a root beer colored 924. And I used to go out there and take pictures of it. I thought it was the coolest thing. So I always thought, uh, and I am a Porsche guy still, but I always thought that was going to be my journey. Went to college in, you know, Edson on, uh, on Garage Riot had a, a 318 IS. I thought it was really cool. And for me, you know, kind of growing up in the, in the era of, you know, when BMWs were special as far as they were, they weren't very common. You know, if, if you knew somebody that had a BMW, oh my God, right. That was amazing. And uh, another member of ours, uh, Brainstain, his uncle-in-law, I suppose, had, I think a 320 or three series to the point that every time he'd wash it, he'd take the wheels off and bring them inside and clean them individually and take them outside. You know, it was just it was more special than to have a BMW than, than it is a little bit maybe today. So, you know, kind of grew up with that too. And, you know, when, when I went to college and Edson had his car, which was pretty, you know, outstanding for a college kid. I mean, it was a fairly new car at the time. You know, we became great friends and I was kind of taken by, you know, BMW. So I worked one summer, worked two jobs and, and saved up for my first car. Uh, after my freshman year of college, I ended up buying a, an older BMW, a 320. And for me, you know, it, that was kind of the, the entry point. Although I have deviated, you know, I've come back and BMW has always been a part of my life. I was discouraged, I think, in, in previous years of buying certain models that, of course, I own now that, you know, I paid a premium for it. And I, I told my friends, you know, shut up and, and let me buy them, I would have gotten into them more. But, you know, there is a lifestyle aspect of it. You know, there's the big events like the vintage and things that happen every year. And, you know, the clubs are pretty big and it's a cool, you know, kind of enthusiast group to be a part of. And James, I agree with you too on, on some of those points around Mercedes is, I think they're coming back from it now, but, you know, in the nineties, they were kind of the big luxury, you know, big seats kind of thing where BMW was still a little more performance oriented for the most part, it seemed. And, Porsche is kind of its own thing, right? I mean, it's it's more sports car where BMW is more, it is sports car, but it's also utility. You can get the kids in the back, you know, you can go do those things and you can still terrorize the track. So for me, you know, it kind of caught me early and, you know, along with Porsche, those, those both have always kind of been my passion. With all three of us being petrol heads of a certain age, I too grew up in a similar era of vehicles as you guys did. And the vision I always had of BMWs to Donovan's point was, there was almost a stereotype, like you were either a stockbroker and you, or middle manager and you owned a BMW, or you were the guy wearing the yellow polo shirt with the pink sweater wrapped around your shoulders and tied in a knot off to the tennis court, right? It had a certain je ne sais quoi about it, right? It was like BMW. Again, there was this mystique. It's like, who is this BMW owner? Like you knew who all the GTI guys were. You know who all the Porsche guys were because they, they had Beatles at a previous life, you know? And there was a certain, I guess, culture that grew up around all of those cars. I grew up in a VW Audi family, we've had VWs and Audis since the early 60s. So it was a whole different kind of mindset. You know, my definition of sporty versus yours is very different. For me, it didn't happen with BMW until the E30 M3. Everything else before that, I was like, oh, reverse aerodynamic noses. They're they're boring. They're sedans. If you want something sporty, get a GTI. I don't know why anybody would buy a BMW, right? It, it, I'm very hard to convince that BMW was the answer. Granted, 
if you're looking for rear wheel drive, it's the way to go. And compared to a Mercedes, you guys are right. It's, it's a lot more sporty, not nearly as luxurious or as powerful as the AMGs or the Brabuses or some of the other things that were out at the time. Let's talk about each of yours kind of collection of BMWs and maybe some that stand out specifically. And let's start with James. Collection of BMWs. So current ownership. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> You can talk about the past. We can go back to the future. Well, I will tell you that my life started with, my BMW life started with an E30 M3. And, you know, again, I was a college kid, but at that point, that stuff was attainable. I had one with an engine swap because uh, I bought it from a girl that had blown up the motor, didn't check the oil, blew up the motor. 70,000 miles on the car, 10,000 on the motor because it had an engine swap. It was a, it was a smoking deal. I got it for well less than 10 grand and it, you know, interior and exterior was just perfect. So that was my first love in the BMW world. So that, that one's always special. Almost currently, I just went through E30 M3 ownership again, and it was very different this time. So my first ownership of E30 M3 was, let's take this thing to the racetrack. And just, you know, immediately I started ripping weight out of the car and modifying this thing and doing all the, and, you know, it was just a rat. Well, I say ratted out. It was a track car that I drove on the street. And because in college, you don't care and you do dumb stuff like that. And it was awesome. It was loud and the brakes squealed and everywhere I drove it, it, those things make power in the high RPMs, but it didn't matter. That's, that's where I lived. I was going to rev that thing out wherever. My most recent E30 M3 ownership was this beautiful Hina car. And now I felt like a custodian of a car. I wouldn't dare modify it. It was tastefully modified. It has, you know, Evo three rear spoiler, Evo two front, some little Evo parts here and there, but it was very stock. You know, I had to be careful when I drove it and, you know, it was, it's not the BMW that I enjoy today. You know, it, it may have been, but I would never do the things to it that make me enjoy a BMW a lot of the time that I did back in the day. So, so I sold the E30 M3, but I do have that ridiculous E36 Pikes Peak car. The business has it. So that's my influence and I get to drive it. So I guess I can be the custodian of that one. I have an E36 wagon, which I love. It's an E36 Touring with a E39 M5 motor, E46 M3, E92 M3. So I, I'm an M, M car guy. And I'm a three series guy, so a three slash four series. I've got, well, GT more is what we call it. It's our project car on a on an F8X platform. And, and I'm currently waiting for my loaner G80 M3. So I love all the M cars. I love all generations of M cars. I like other stuff too, but really what makes a BMW for me is something that I can really get in, experience, drive, modify, make it mine, and just truly enjoy. While, while I certainly love and appreciate them, I realize that I love and appreciate the classics in other people's hands where I, I don't have to do the upkeep with less joy of ownership the way I enjoy it to own one. Before we go on to Donovan, that's actually a really good point because the one BMW I've owned was a previous track car that had changed hands several times, right? So a countless people have had their hands in the car and, you know, the body had 300,000 miles and the motor had like 3000 miles on it. You know, one of those type of stories, <laughs> it was an E36. And I wanted to know what all the fuss was about because all my friends had E36 track cars. So I figured I'll buy one too. You know, I've said it more than once on this show. It was like owning a boat for me, not coming from the BMW world. The happiest day for me was the day I bought it. And the second happiest day was the day I got rid of it. And everything in between was an absolute nightmare. And so you get underneath that car and I'd pull my hair out and go, what in the hell were they thinking? On a Volkswagen, it's like, this is super easy. It's three bolts. Why is this nine links and 27 pieces? And I'm like, why is this over-engineered? I don't understand, you know? And so it drove me kind of nuts. It had, you know, the typical issues, had, you know, valve covers and Vanos and everything else that's wrong with the E36 that you're constantly maintaining. So for me, the maintenance, it made it just 
this daunting task and it, it worried me every time I took it to the track. I'm like, what's going to blow up next? How much more money do I have to sink into this thing? You know, so I kind of I backed away from BMWs and I said, ah, you're going to have to really sell me hard on my next one. Right. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want to talk about Donovan's collection of BMWs before we move on. Yeah, I feel like I kind of need to lead you up to where I am. So you know, I mentioned the 320 and then I had a gap, you know, I kind of got into the Fast and Furious world before Fast and Furious. I uh, did that for a little while, did some other things, but finally got back into BMWs after Porsches. But, you know, I got back in with a with an X5 4.4, which I loved and I put 230,000 miles on it and it still drove like a champ. I think the only problem I had with it was the alternator went out once, which apparently was a liquid cooled $1,600 alternator, apparently. See, over-engineered and super expensive. See what I'm talking about? Why All do you right, need easy. a liquid-cooled alternator? <laughs> easy. We're, just, just be aware that Donovan and I are going to start double-teaming the Volkswagen guy. So you only get to do this a little bit here. <laughs> Right. So yeah, that and, you know, the, the AC stopped cooling as much, but I ended up getting rid of that thing. It, it was fantastic. And then I had another little bit of a gap. I'd kind of been looking at the E30 M3s and, you know, like I mentioned a minute ago, I kept having people that had never owned one telling me why I shouldn't buy them, right? Oh, they rust in the back and this, that, and the other. So it kind of kept me away for a little while. So I finally did buy one. It was fantastic, right? That car had been sent back to Germany and it had the dog leg and all the Evo bits and everything else on it, which I didn't quite appreciate at the time. And, and to give you an idea, I paid 17 for it. I kept it for about two years and sold it for 26. That was the year before they went to 40 and 45 and all those. And I didn't realize, you know, the, the gold that was in the parts. But so what did I do is I bought another one once they were 45, 50. So I have that one now. I have an E30 M3. I have two E28 M5s. I just sold, Eric, you know the story about my E36 M3. Sold it to a 17-year-old kid. It was his dream car, but to me, it just felt like this car belonged with him. Two weeks later, he totaled it. I just bought an F80 M3 at the beginning of the year. I haven't told you this, Eric, but I found a 2002 Turbo. And oh. it's, it's on its way to the States right now. So it's not a done deal, but hopefully in a month, we'll be talking about uh, talking about that. But uh, so fingers crossed. But yeah, you know, the, the, the modifying portion of, you know, the, I wouldn't dare modify like the E30 or the M5s, right? I mean, finding parts alone for the E, the, the M5 is, is near impossible. I, I found a dash in the Ukraine or something, you know, to fix one of them had a cracked dash, that kind of thing. It was 1500 bucks, you know, those kind of things. I did put suspension on the, the E30 M3, but the F80 is a different story. I mean, that car is fast already. It's a it's competition car, but, you know, flashing it and doing some other things. So I'm on the climb with that car where the other ones, you know, like you said, James, I want to keep as stock as possible. I mean, you know, some cosmetics, maybe some suspension work, but I, I enjoy that car a lot. And we go ripping through the mountains with Tesla owners, which don't get me wrong, they're still faster, but it's nice to be able to keep up with them and not be in a 30 year old BMW that on the radio saying, Hey guys, hang on while I catch up. to you." <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a little bit about, you know, your guys history, the collections and things like that and experiences. And I guess that leads me to kind of some opinion questions, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw these out there. Maybe I'll, I'll start with Donovan on this one. What do you guys think just looking back over the history, is the best BMW? You know, I'm probably a little biased. I mean, I, I would immediately go to the E30 M3. You know, you go, I mean, I think that's still, isn't that the most winning touring car of all time or something? I mean, it's... Yep. it's Let's unpack the E30 M3. You guys have both mentioned it several times here. So I'm not, I don't take issue with it because I think that car is awesome. And I am a huge fan of DTM, as you know, Donovan. But it felt like it was BMW's attempt to Xerox copy the UR Quattro 10 years too late, 
right? I mean, if you look at it, it's it's just like the UR Quattro. We got the jackknife flares, which were kind of going out of style in the late 80s anyway, right? The 944 had already done it. The RX-7 had already done it. They all copied the Audi from the early 80s. And it's kind of like similar shape, similar style, similar idea, kind of homologated rally car type of look and feel to it. But at the end of the day, just like the Audi, it's based on a you know, boring sedan or boring two-door. And in the E30's case, it's an E30. So what really makes it so special outside of the bodywork? Well, I mean, you could say by today's standards, right? It's the, and I'm going to say, you know, I hate this word, but you know, to most people, it's the unicorn, right? Oh my God, I can't believe, you know, it's just got this mystique around it that, I mean, they made a lot of them, right? So it's not yeah. like they made 300. And I think a lot of them were abused and thrown away over the years. So now to see one is, is something special, but you know, the, the handling on them and I can't, you know, James can probably speak better to this. I didn't, I've never tracked mine and I don't intend to, but you know, my understanding is, is they track really well. I know people that have tracked cars and, and they're supposed to do really well at that, but you know, I don't know. I mean, in, in all honesty, and I shouldn't really say this, of that era, right? I think the the 190E 2.5 Mercedes had a lot to offer in that era too. But again, right, the big flared body work and and all those kind of things, obviously, you know, for a reason. But, you know, I don't know. I I just think it's special, right? You know, it's, to me, I don't see a lot of manufacturers, even current day, stepping out and really making a significant leap from the passenger car version of one car to this kind of flared out part. I mean, yeah. you can say the challenger things like that, but you know what I mean, right? These really kind of special, almost, you know, the, the homologated version. I mean, it's really what it yeah. was. To that point, the E36 stock is better than any E30 M3 out the gate, right? I mean, we know that as it's evolution right there. I, I wonder if the E36 isn't held in higher regard. I mean, it definitely is in the track world. You see more of them. They're like Miatas. They're freaking everywhere right (laughs) but it's also a massively produced m car as well right it was the first one to be like totally doesn't have independent throttle bodies all this fun stuff because it was built you know basically on an assembly line and cranked out as fast as they could get them out there so going to james why is the e30 m3 so special versus some of the other cars that are out there well you know i think it's i think it's the the opposite of that E36 that you're talking about. To me, maybe at the time in the in the late 80s, early 90s, the E30 M3 was special. And that were BMW people, they thought that thing was pretty special. They were higher production, right? That's where they made 10,000, something like a little over that, over the over all the production running of years. They weren't necessarily flying off the shelf either because they were, you know, they were expensive. They were expensive cars. I think that our appreciation for the E30 M3 has gone up over the years. And I think the mystique has gone up and it's special because it's so special. It's special because it's not an E30. So that was the first car that I tracked. And it, you're right, it, Donovan, it just is amazing. It's so light and it's light and nimble like a like an E30 318 IS, but it's powerful like an like a E30 325. And so I can remember arguing, and this sounds like a ridiculous argument if I say it today, I remember arguing with with one of my friends early on in my track career who had an E30 325 and we were arguing about which one was better. You know, the E30 M3 or the 325, they were similar lap times. They do it in a little bit different ways, or at least in the trim levels that we were looking at racing them. In retrospect, in you know, in this day and age where the E30 M3 is highly valued. I think what makes them, you know, so special is just how unique they are. It was the first true M car. I think there were, you know, there were M variants of cars up until that point, but there was never one that they just said, this is an M whatever. Well, what, what, about the, what about the M1? Isn't that the original M car from 1978? <laughs> he swatted anyway. me away. He swatted me away. <laughs> but, you know, of attainable means, right? We, so we talk about production numbers. Yes, it, it was. That thing still looks like a spaceship kind of. And, you know, back in the back in the late 70s, that's not attainable. That's not something that anybody ever show, saw on a dealer showroom floor. 
E30 M3 is like what starts to be cool about BMWs to me is they're attainable. And that car was in production numbers that became attainable, but it had so much different DNA than the non-M cars of the time. You know, so your original question or your question a bit ago to Donovan is what's the best BMW ever? And, and again, you've got to decide how you're asking that question or what type of response, because to me, the best BMW car ever is an E36 something. And it's, it's an E36 something, not because the original car was awesome or because the M3 is super special or whatever. It's just like, they're the universal they can do anything. They were iconic in the 90s to me. You can throw any motor in them and make them ridiculously fast and fun. And, and, they're, and they're just so out there. They're, they were made in such high numbers. That's why they're like Miatas at the track. There's just, there's so many made. And sure, there you can run an M3, which isn't all that special. It's not, it's not special compared to a 328. It's you know, super similar. Use the same transmission, use the same diff, all, you know, all these things. Use the same bodywork except for, for bumpers. So all these things that make those things so available and so great to modify and such a great foundation for anything you would do on the track, that's the absolute opposite of what the E30 M3 is with so many specialized parts that just make that thing a special level of cool that we just, we haven't, honestly, I don't think we've gotten since in the BMW world. Well, and then you kind of have the crossover, right? You've got the E30 M3 with the E36 driveline in it, which, you know, mm. To me, that's that's heresy, right? But, you, know, you should think, you should do that to one of yours. No, no, you know, some people think that's the perfect combination between the two, too. So I, I don't know. I, I we talked about it. I don't think I would bastardize the car to do that, but uh, it wouldn't suffer from a little more horsepower power for sure. That's that's true. And and for the money you would spend on that, and for the the mods that James is talking about, the E36. I mean, I've driven a lot of BMWs. Like I said, I've only owned one, but I've driven a lot and I've coached a lot. And I do have my likes and my dislikes, but my vote goes to the E46 M3 because I feel like that's when they finally figured it out. It was too late though because they were already moving on. And we'll talk about the Bengal BMWs and things like that in a, in a minute. I feel like that's the last of the true BMWs to your point, like true driver's cars where you jump in, they're still very raw, very primitive, no, no real nannies to speak of. You get in and you have fun, even in stock trim, they're absolutely amazing to be behind the wheel of. So I think my vote kind of goes to the end of the line of that, that small, you know, let's say 20 year span there of M cars has got to be to the E46 where they, they finally got it right. But let's flip this on its head and go back to James. And what's the worst? BMW, in your opinion? <laughs> oh, man. There are certainly some models I don't like. There's a singular E21 that holds a special place in my heart for being the absolute single worst car I've ever laid my hands on. But I think in general, in broad terms, the worst BMW is that like five, eight years ago, uh, we never got them in the US. Thank goodness. That five door version of the two series active tour or whatever that whatever that thing was in <laughs> Germany that looks like it's like a BMW uh, minivan, but in the absolute worst form you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, they tried to copy the Audi A2, which didn't make it here either, thankfully. Oh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's that may be obscure. Uh, you know, I really don't like the E21. One of our guys uh, at work is a diehard E21 guy. And I know that there's some variants that are cool, but suspension design, power output started to get heavy, started to do that late 80s or, or I'm sorry, early 80s, late 70s kind of weirdness with the way lights are integrated and bumpers have to have these, you know, rubbery ribbed things on them for the federal stuff. It started to get funky for me then. 
They also had that reverse aerodynamic nose, I call it, where the grill slants into the wind rather than away from it. But hey, you know, whatever. Styling is what it is. So I got to stand up for the E21s a little bit. I just sold one. I sold a sport package car. It was, what, 90,000 miles. You know, I expected that car to be worth more, and I kept holding out. And finally, I was like, I got to get rid of this thing. But And all of the things that you guys just railed on, with the exception of you, is what I like to buy, right? The, the front end, to me, BMWs were BMWs when the, when the front end was a little square, maybe kicked back. You think about like the six series, right? I, I, that to me was, was great, but didn't care for the rear end of that car much. But, you know, to me, the, the E21, I always thought of the race car, which I thought was really fantastic. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to talk performance wise, but I think just visually, I think the Bengal Air 5 series were not great. The new M cars, I'm still waiting for them to grow on me, but I, I, I just can't. I think it's easily fixable, right? You paint the middle support bar and divide the kidneys and maybe that helps out a little bit. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, you look back at, at some of the Bavarias and things and think, well, but then you see one that's been, you know, lowered slightly and has nice wheels on it. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can I can deal with that one a little bit. But I just have to stick to the designs or some of these grand touring ones that we did get, like the some of the five series are a little weird. But for me, it's really about the styling on, on the ones I mentioned before, I think, or I could, I could do without for sure. I think it's funny you guys bring that up and I've heard nothing but horror stories about the eight series, especially the eight fifties. We asked this question of other people before and they're like, Oh, the eight fifty, the V12. That's, that's horrendous. That's like the worst BMW ever. Granted, you know, often <laughs> you keep all the haircuttery jokes to yourself, much like the Miata guys do being a hairdresser's car and all this kind of thing. But it was a step out of the normal with the eight fifty and the eight forty for sure. To your point, maybe not the worst, but it's probably up there in the top three of probably in terms of maintenance and parts, obscurity and things like that, because it shares nothing really with anything else. So I think that's probably pretty high up there as well. Well, the 850 can't be the worst car because that thing actually looks pretty cool. The worst version of that is a 750 when you get more electrical goodies that can fail, but you've still got to maintain that same lump of a motor, which you're right, is an absolute nightmare. What's the worst car? Any seven series with 100,000 miles on it. Blanket statement. Except for the one on the transporter, which is awesome no matter what, because <laughs> it had a stick shift, but you know, we'll leave it there. You know, you kind of hit on something in terms of styling, right? And there's a lot to be said about BMW styling. And it goes way back, right? We're talking all the way back pre-World War II to the early 20s, you know, with the long, the kidney grill is a signature thing of BMW. Love it or hate it. It's been around forever. You kind of look at back at all the styling. And I often wonder if BMW was like, hey, you know what, in, in modern terms, let's just send it. Let's just see if this style sticks and if somebody likes it. But I kind of feel like that's been the motto for a long time because even in recent times, I, as one of our members puts it, there seems to be a seat for every ass when it comes to BMW. They will tool a design for like three people. And they're like, oh, we'll call it the five series GT plus hatchback thing. And you're like, how many of those did you guys make? Like, why? Who cares? You know what I mean? And so I wonder if they're pushing the envelope. They're just crazy. I, I mean, I don't know. It kind of brings up the question of best looking versus worst looking BMWs, kind of in your guys' opinion. Let's go with Donovan. I um, mean, I go for best. I, I got to go straight to the race cars. I know that that was kind of out of the bounds of the question, but you know, you think of the, the 3.0 cars, the 3.5s, the CSLs back in the 70s, I think are just gorgeous. Um, those are some of my favorites. And, and those to me really... Even, you know, when I was a kid kind of looking around, you'd see those and like, wow, what is that? You know, those are really cool. And I always wanted a, a 3.0 when I got older. I, I'm over that now. I don't want one now, but uh, I think they're pretty cool. Those are definitely great looking cars. But, you know, like I said, to me, that era of that kind of 
square nose or the slanted end nose a little bit. To me, that's when, for me anyway, that's when BMWs were BMWs. When we started getting into some of the plastic, you know, covered surround headlights and things, it still kind of kept some of that styling, but then, you know, we get into Bengal again, but you know, the older cars, the original cars and stuff, I think are cool in their own right. I actually know a 328 in a storage container somewhere. He's, I'm trying to get it from, he won't, I think he's going to die with it, but. You what, know, what year 328 is that? I don't know, but he, he, the story goes, mystery. he lived in the Bahamas or something. And there was a guy on the corner that was always working on cars and he traded him something for it. I forget what it was and then shipped it here. It's up, it's up North Georgia somewhere and disassembled it and then put it in one of those, not the full length storage containers, but the half ones and packed it in there and it's been sitting there forever. And the guy and his son restore cars, but they haven't gotten to this one. Offered him, you know, are you gonna sell it? Are you gonna sell it? And they never would, but they had that 507 that I did, that we did the video of. So they come across them. But um, in my understanding, and I, I don't know the older BMWs that well, but my understanding is the 327 is way more desirable. The 328 is not as much, but, but you know, those were cool, right? And I think it's that identifying factor, right? The kidneys, you can't really mistake, you know, that that's a BMW. I've heard several times, I think Chris Harris even talked about it, you know, that the big grills, the big kidneys thing is for the, the Chinese market, that that's an appeal there. So maybe they're just trying to expand a little bit, but I was heading to Florida recently and, and stopped and this lady came in and she had a brand new four series convertible. I asked her, you know, what do you think about it? She's like, oh, it's great. I said, what do you think about the kidneys? And I didn't say, I think they're God awful, right? What do you think? But I said, Hey, you know, what do you think about the styling? And she said, Oh, I think it's great. And all my friends love it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it, it's, it's resonating with some people. So I, I think like you said, you know, some people just, they flock to it and they love it. And then I think others are still on the fence about it, but. So the ugliest BMW. I still have to go back to, well, I'll just, pick, I'll just pick the current. current <laughs> The one that looks like something off Babylon five. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Science fiction BMWs up next. James, what do you think? Best and worst in terms of styling? You know, I don't know what our Bengal count is up. You know, I've, we've said his name eight, nine, ten times now. It's a, it's a, it's you a know, drinking I, game now. I'll tell you. <laughs> right. I'm an early adopter on this stuff. I'm open-minded. I'm not so absolute on how I feel because I do think there is a period of time that anything new is not the right thing, especially when you emotionally connect to a car or a car mark that has defined points that make it that kind of car. And so I think that BMW has generally had these traditional styling elements. I mean, it's not a Kia that picks up whoever styling elements that they saw that week and incorporated into their car. It has very consistent styling through the years. So I, I pick up on the stuff. I like it earlier than most would. I love the new M cars. I say the new M cars, the new M3 and 4. I think that looks so mean and aggressive. Of course, I think they could have done themselves a favor. And I think when it was introduced with a chrome surround, that's terrible because it highlights the thing I don't like about that. But I love seeing it on the road cars and probably because I see how it translates into the, the race cars, you know, and now that the GT4 is out and visible, we see that big opening and how they're using that to pull air through and those, you know, those scoops on the hood that come down and you can see they've just dropped those further and now they get this extraction from that. And I, I just, I think that's super cool. So, you know, and I like some of the Bengal stuff earlier than I should have, or earlier than a lot of people did. I guess the, you know, the first Bengal I remember was the, was the seven series. Maybe that was the one that the trunk came on, but, and maybe that one wasn't awesome. But at the time I was, I was pretty ambivalent or slightly positive on the five, but the Z4 I loved. Anyway, that's a long roundabout to, to say that I do like the new styling, but I queued in on that 328 because the 328, the pre-World War II car, I think is, is 
my absolute favorite BMW. And that's, I've never driven one. I've gotten to be around a couple. I think that that's just elegant and beautiful and amazing and really doesn't resonate with anything that I do with BMWs or any BMWs that I have, but I think it's beautiful. I'm with you there, you know, especially talking about like the Bengal cars, like the M6, right? It looks like a angry badger and I've gotten used to it. And to Donovan's point with the right color and the right wheel package, and you look at it, you know, half three sheets to the wind with one eye open, it looks pretty good sometimes, but then you have other cars, not so much, right? And, and I'm with you on the Z4, right? I like the Z4, especially the M Coupe when they first came out. I think that's a really cool car, way better looking than the Z3, the clown shoe. I know people are going to hate me for it. The clown shoe is a great car handling wise. I've driven a bunch. They're, they're cool. They're fun. They're twitchy. They do everything right. It's just not what you bring home to mama at the end of the day. But in terms of like best looking BMWs, I think some of those big sedans, like the late 90s, like the, the Transporter 7 series, even the 8 series, that are more elegant, that are a little bit more subdued, that are almost more Mercedes-like, to me, kind of stand out because I like that sleeper look and style. I'm also a big fan of BMW station wagons. I think the 5 series precursor to the E39 station wagon, I can't remember all the E numbers, but you guys know what I'm talking about. That. Yes, the 34 station wagon or the state or whatever you want to call it. I think that's a cool looking ride, especially when they're done up some basket weed BBS wheels and lowered and all that. But on the ugly side, I mean, that ugly tree is long when it comes to BMWs. But the one, there's one that sticks out, right? And you can have fun with some of the old cars like the Izetta and say it's super cute and it's quirky because it's at the era of the Fiat 500 and the Beetle. But I think there's one car that takes the cake and it's pretty modern. And there's a close second right along with it is the i3. There is no angle that you can look at an i3 and say that it's good looking because it looks like a three series that went through a trash compactor, right? I just don't understand it. But the other one is the i8. And I have a hard time with that one too, because it's so futuristic. It almost looks cartoonish. But if you take a page from the BMW kind of prototype playbook, especially stuff coming out of Ital Design by Jujaro, if you look at the Nazca and the Nazca C2 and some of the other things that he built, you're like, I understand where the i8 came from. It's an evolution of those designs. So I appreciate it on both ends, but the i3 just, oh, that takes the cake in terms of terrible <laughs> at the end of the day. I think there's two though that we didn't mention that are on the good side. Obviously the, uh, the Z8. Yeah, oh, that's a gorgeous car. And I'm going to go way back to the Dixie, right? Remember their first kind of entry into, I was in Amelia Island a couple of years ago and there was one there, it was invited to be, it was a hundred year of an, uh, anniversary of, of BMW. And I, I'd been looking for one semi-seriously, right? Not to pay a lot of money for one. And there was one there and I asked the guy about it and uh, I said, hey, I'm looking for one. And his response was, why? I expected, you know, having it there, he'd have been like, oh yeah, they're great cars. He was like, why? I said, I, I don't know. I just thought they were kind of cool. You know, it'd be kind of cool. He's like, nah, you, you don't want these. I'm not, I'm not worth that. I thought those were cool. So that's actually a great segue into another question. So Donovan, since you're always in the market and buying and selling cars and looking at the market, like we talked about on the last drive-through episode and whatnot, what's the best BMW when you think about it from value for money? Like somebody wants to jump in and say, hey, 
maybe it's not the super rare 327 it's not a z8 you know it, but it's also not an e30 right what's that value for money car where it's like you're really getting the most out of it not spending a ton and might be worth something in the future yeah that might be a better question to ask james i mean to me you know i try to buy bmws that i think are you know, I'm prospecting, right? That I think are going to increase or be worth more in five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years kind of thing. So, you know, when it comes to, and I'm, I'm making up something here, but say, you know, a, a, an E30, 325, that might be a great value. I don't know. I'm not really in, in the market of those, but, you know, to me, I try to find, I think there's enough BMWs on the, the more attainable side that, you know, I think are generally you can say are, are going to be a good value, right? And E36 M3, we talked about those. They're steadily growing a little bit. I doubled the mine when I when I sold it um, over a few years. But, um, and of course, you know, the E30 itself, right? Those, the, the Fast and Furious crowd graduated from those cars to BMWs and everybody now is after the E30s and especially the E30 wagons and stuff. I mean, they're, you know, in the 20s, which is kind of crazy to me. But, you know, I think those are those are kind of good to, to get into the market with if you can find one that hasn't been abused. But I don't know. I'd defer to James on that. He probably knows a little more than I do. I don't even think about that. So that's so I, this is where I'm terrible. The only BMW I've ever sold and made money on was that E30 M3 that I bought recently. And that's just because I dumb lucked into it. I actually lost money if I consider opportunity cost. Because if I'd sold it a year later, I would have doubled my money. I'm an idiot when it comes to buying cars, thinking that I know something about resale value. I know nothing about prospecting for that. I do think in general, cars are seeing more of a bubble. In the in the BMW world, the E30 M3 was the first one to see that thing really start to blow up super fast. And then some others followed. I don't know that E36 M3 will ever enjoy that because I just don't think that they were as special. If I could have stacked some 50,000 mile E46 M3 five years ago, I certainly would have done that. That would have been a good buy. I'll tell you, I love the V8 cars, the S62, S65 cars. I feel like those probably have good value, but we're kind of in that place where people are starting to try to predict the bubble and get ahead of it. And so I don't know that the costs are as reasonable. And then, you know, I, I think ultimately those cars are going to be maybe underappreciated. You know, you say, Eric, that you love that E46 M3. And I, you know, I like that as well, but I, I love the new stuff. You know, once they got turbos, funny, I have a buddy that just bought an F82 M4 the soulless, big, heavy, the worst M3, M4 BMWs ever made, says everybody, until they make the next new one. And then everybody's like, oh, we love that last one. That was awesome. Now this is the worst one ever made. So, you know, there's people that are just don't like that change. And he was on that side for a while. And what grabbed him on this car is there it came from a BMW dealership that ordered a bunch of individual cars. And so this thing is in Daytona Violet, one of our favorite E36 M3 colors. So he's like, I, I don't know that I love this car, but I, I got to have a Daytona Violet car. This thing's amazing. And he's coming out of an E36 M3. He's like, but, you know, they suck. They're big. They're heavy. They're soulless. They're, all, you know, all these things. After three weeks, he's like, all right, man, I get you. It's violently fast. It has plenty of power. It is bigger, but it feels nimble. It just, it does things well in a different way, but it's a modern way. And when I get back in my E36, you know, his has an engine in it, big cams, et cetera. So nicely modified. So it has some power. He's like, it's still, it just feels like this car does everything and it is connected to me. I do think people underappreciate some of that newer stuff. And, but I, I don't know if that's enough to save the future value of NA cars or not. I'm still waiting on the E28 M5s to go. In any chance I can say that, you know, one just sold for 70, I think I'm bringing a trailer. To me, that's amazing, right? They only made, what, 2,200 of them? 
and there's still people are just still overlooking them. It's crazy. I'm still waiting for its day in the sun to, to pop. I love those cars. I think they're, you know, and same thing, the E30 started to go wild. And I'm like, man, well, what about the ones that they made so few of? And, you know, and I like that car more personally. You know, I love a four-door car. Yeah, I'm shocked that they're not out of sight. So looking at it from a entry-level, let's say, motorsport enthusiast opinion, I think there's three. And they're pretty modern, actually, if you're looking to value for money. Because I, I look at cars all the time, too, because, you know, what's my next project? What's my next track toy? This kind of thing. Now, I, I did make an oath, pretty pronounced one, that I would never own a BMW again. But there are a few that do make my list, though. And the first one is, I've already mentioned it, it's the Z4. Now, I'm of the old school mentality that I can M it up just like you can make a golf into a GTI, you know, kind of deal. That's the old school mentality is I'll buy all the M parts and make my own M. So you can make a Z4M in some ways or make it better than a Z4M with a Z4. They're still going for not a ton of money. It's a good looking car if you're into a two-door coupe, which I'm a big fan of two-door coupes. Can still get it with a manual because I, you know, I'm, I'm part of the whole save the manual campaign <laughs> as well. But I think the car that comes after that, which is also underappreciated, is the E88, the 135s, and the 128s. Those are well-balanced. They're kind of small like the E36s were compared to some of the bigger stuff that's out now. They handle really well. I've ridden in those cars. They make plenty of power, also turbocharged in a lot of cases. So you don't necessarily need the M. You can M it up or pay the M tax. The third one, and I've had the opportunity to coach in, is the 2 Series either the M235, which I don't understand the badging thing and I won't get on that soapbox, or the M2 itself. I think both of those cars right now, they are still a little bit more pricey than the other two I mentioned, but as an all around turnkey package, that two series, and I hear it's coming back as a matter of fact, because it was discontinued, it's kind of like the best of everything. You want it to be an autocrosser? It can be. You want to be a grocery getter? It can be. You want to go to the track with it? It can do all of those things. And it will surprise the heck out of you. And like I said, I've, I've coached in several of them. And every time I got out of them, I turn around and look at the car and I'm like, that's a BMW, huh? Kind of like that's the way it should be. So they, another one where I feel like the E46 where they kind of got it right. But it leads me into another question that, James, you kind of brought up about the different motors that are out there. There's brands out there that are known for their motors, right? And so obviously the classic motor for a BMW is the inline six, right? And having inline motors anymore, I mean, that's reminiscent of the Packard days of like an inline eight, right? As long as the hood could be kind of deal or even an old Cadillac or something like that. So it's rare to see those inline motors anymore, but some companies are known for their motors. Like I said, Toyota with the four EGE or the two JZ out of the Supra, Porsche, obviously for the flat six, Volkswagen's the 16 valves, the 20 valves, Audi with the five-cylinder turbos and things like that were these bulletproof engines. But then they also have some real lemons too. Like why the hell did they make that? You know, and, and Fiat's got tons of those. Oh wait, did I say that out loud? Uh, <laughs> so what is on both ends of that spectrum for BMW? What are the motors that are like God's given motors and what are the ones to really stay away from? You, like you said, uh, BMW is an inline six and they are very good at those things. Uh, you know, I think the M30 is a pretty solid motor, M20, M30. I think the M50 variants are amazing. I love those things. And I, especially when I think about the potential of those things, not necessarily just how they are as delivered from the factory, but what the potential of those motors is. I love the architecture in them, especially when you slap a turbo on those things get really impressive. And so you don't have to go to the newer generation stuff necessarily. 
So I'm going to say M52 is a really solid motor in that lineup. It's the 328 motor. Those things are, are super reasonable, easy to get. Plenty of them out there, square motor and throw a turbo on it and they're amazing. If you want the factory turbo motor, the N54, without doing much work to it, just external stuff, those things take a ton of power as is, and then do a closed deck deal and throw some forged parts at it and they get way up there. So I, I love those things. On the other side of that, early four cylinders were awesome. M10s, S14s, the, you know, the, the kind of that era stuff. But having to look at and deal with and spend money on for so many years, one of those N20s, which is the turbocharged four cylinder from a F2X, F3X, three series, two series. Those things are not my favorite. They just don't hold up particularly well. Even in street form, they don't hold up particularly well. They make okay power. You know, I, I think the defining point from that is, um, you know, we, we were one of very few teams to race those, those engines. And about three years into the program, we finally figured out how to get those things to live more than two races, two races on a motor, you know, it, which involved lots of exotic parts and tuning and cooling. We, we spent two or 300 grand on cooling solution just to make that thing live. We had some BMW engineers over from Germany and the, you know they had their their new M6 that they're super proud of, and yeah, we built this and and come over and look at what other people are doing, and and they knew of our team and what we were doing. They wanted to come over because they couldn't believe that that engine lived in a racing environment, and they're like, oh yeah, that was that was a terrible motor. So it's like, yes, we know this. This is a terrible motor. That's going to go on my list of one of the, might not be the worst, but certainly one of the worst that BMW did, followed by a 12-cylinder that from that 850, 750, or you know some of the eight cylinders that they just have little niggly things that just don't go quite right that make that a bad ownership experience for people. Yeah, I don't really have any any negative experiences. I, I can tell you po- positive. Obviously, I'm I'm partial to the S14 and in the S38, right? The the derivative of the M88 that's in the E24, the M6s and the M5s, like I was talking a minute ago. I, I love the sound of that. You know, one of my cars has a really nice exhaust on it, and just the way that just the natural rumble sound of it, I think is fantastic. And you know, I gotta say, thank God it was an inline six. I had a, a fuel line that cracked and was spewing gas down. Down the cold side of the motor had that been a v8 or something it would have been a fire for sure so you know kind of a side side bonus of, of having a you know an inline motor you know i mentioned it earlier seat for every ass so these new bmw designs are all over the planet and you know it kind of makes me wonder what do we think about the the whole evolution of bmw because if you look at it i mean they started with planes and motorcycles and then finally into cars and it's been this constant just churn we had the bangle period and most people don't realize that there's even bob lutz is involved in this famous from gm right he's the one that coined the advertising phrase the ultimate driving machine and there's tons of jokes around that you know the ultimate driving machine so long as it's sunny outside you know there's no rain no snow or anything in the forecast but (laughs) what do we think about the future i know james you said you're an early adopter but BMW's done some really interesting press releases recently, right? Saying they're going to be the last of the Germans with an internal combustion engine. They were saying for the longest time, they were going to be the last ones with a manual. They were going to be the last ones to do all these kinds of things. And what do we think about that? What do we think about the direction they're headed in? I do love so many things about BMW and, and, you know, I, I don't have a lot of bad things to say or a lot of negative things to say. And, I, and I'll tell you, my ownership experience has been largely positive too. You mentioned your E36 track car and probably too many fingers in that pie. And so, you know, that's a, 
that's certainly a factor, but I've, I've certainly been lucky to some good degree because I, I know there's stories out there about BMW ownership, but I've almost exclusively enjoyed every BMW I've been in. Different things for different people. I enjoy different aspects of different cars. I don't have to love the whole thing. There's some things I scratch my head at, certainly. I'm, I'm driving an i8 right now. That's my daily. And no I, offense, you know, my, my bad. No, it's and and I don't love those. You know, this one's a roadster, and I I think it looks much better than the other version. But you know, it doesn't make the most power, but it does some things really well, and it's it's pretty cool. I do think the model proliferation is a little rough. I think sometimes a car is made, and maybe nobody knows why that car is made. I drove uh, oh, 850s when they the the recent the recent version, not the original version, but the recent version, which is a a, a twin turbo hot V V8, you know that thing, not the Grand Coupe, not the four door, and so this thing has like the longest nose on a BMW. It's like Packard nose, and it's got not enough room to put anything notable in the trunk. I sat in the back seat one time. And I had to sit across the two seats. It's like this massive car with a back seat like a 911 Turbo. And yeah, I, I just don't get that. And I think, unfortunately, the market didn't get that one either. The Grand Coupes had some success. And, you know, the, the M8 is a pretty awesome car. But, you know, Size some of these variants... <laughs> right. But it's, you know, I, I talked, uh, you know, Bill Arberlin is one of our drivers and he has an inmate competition and he's like, yeah, that's what I want. I want a car that I can go 140 and cruise and it's just plush and luxurious. And he's like that, you know, some of the M3, M4 stuff, it's hard for us to think of an M3 and M4 as raw, but compared to one of those inmates, they're a lot more raw than that. Certainly nothing compared to you know, what an E30 M3 would be back in the day or, or something like that, or even that E46 M3, which is a high revving motor and, and still makes lots of noise, et cetera. But anything that, that, you know, the X series stuff where there's not enough headroom for the back passenger for the benefit of some styling cue, like the, you know, X4, X6, you know, that deal with the sloped rear roof line. I don't totally get that. Um, I mean, I was floored when I saw the X2 the first time. I was like, what in the heck is this? Right. I yeah. didn't understand it. I don't I don't get the, the, the roundels on the on the C pillars either. It makes no sense. But uh, <laughs> that's another design choice we won't get into. But to your point, even about the M8, the joke I make there is because of all the IMSA jokes. Right. It's the biggest car on track. I mean, it literally looks uh-huh. like a school bus out there compared to everything else. To your point about the model proliferation before we go on to Donovan's feedback on this, what I don't understand right now, and you said it multiple times, the M3, M4. You say it together now, M3, M4. What happened to the four-door M3 and the two-door M3? Why did we have to add 19 other numbers to the scale? Like It's so confusing now. I don't get it. You know, our web guys go absolutely nuts because every couple of weeks, it feels like we're adding another chassis code. And it's, I mean, it's intense. You know, it's their new way of cataloging. And so be it. And, you know, we're car guys. Like, we know that's an E36. For the rest of the world, that's a that's a 328 or that's an M3. And they don't, you know, the car, the, the chassis code is, you know, and maybe it seems like everybody I talk to every day, but it's because I, I'm around car people every day. I don't know that the rest of the world cares as much as my catalog guys or, you know, the group of people we're talking to now because we just, we are chassis code guys. We're E36, you know, we, you know we're, we're rarely talking about models. We're talking about chassis. Man, we, we went a while. You got to remind me the question. What was the question? <laughs> we were talking about basically where we're at with all these different new BMW models and where the future is. And I have a follow on to this anyway, but. I think there's an aspect of BMW that maybe isn't connected as well to its past and the enthusiast part. And then I think there's another part that's very well connected. And I think 
you know, I will always own a BMW or multiples always. I'm sold for, for life, right? And to me, I think there are other companies that I believe have kind of lost their way. Porsche, for example, right? They're still making fantastic cars, but to me, they're a big corporate machine now. The boutique days are long gone and good for them, right? I mean, it's it's fantastic. They're making lots of money, but $85 for a t-shirt and things like that. And, you know, the last Porsche meeting I went to, Everybody around me was talking about, oh, I bought my Boxster now. And, you know, you probably didn't know anything about the history of, of Porsche before that, you know, and kind of the back to the hairdresser car. And again, good for them, right? That's great success in the corporate world. But, you know, I think with BMW, I think there is that aspect of somebody in the corporate office going, I don't know, let's call it a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven M or let's, you know what I mean? Where they're just throwing numbers and we got the doors with this, that, and the other. But I think there's a large group. I mean, look how many performance cars they make, right? They they really understand that enthusiast market and really are still in touch with that. And not to say that other companies aren't, feels like BMW nurtures that, right? And, and I think, you know, I made the comment earlier about, you know, a lot of the Fast and Furious crowd graduated to BMWs, E30s specifically, you know, and now some other things. I think that's been great for the brand, right? Now it's, hey, BMW is important. And as these new cars come out and, you know, I know we'll all get used to the, you know, the G cars and everything else and, and whatever's after that. But to me, you know, my F80, when I get in it, it's to the point where I'm having to learn to trust the limits of the car that I haven't found yet. Going in the mountains and things, I'm like, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm a little, oh, it, it hooked up. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those kind of things where it's just, it's built to perform. And it's not just another, you know, sedan that they threw, you know, I, I haven't driven a, a Cadillac CTSV lately, but, you know, I imagine it's not something like that where they just shoved a big engine in it and hope, you know, for the best, right? Go on. It's designed to be a performance car, which I think is amazing. So, I think, you know, for me, there's kind of two faces there, right? There's that corporate model of, you know, the marketing group who doesn't seem to pay attention to the heritage of BMW the way that we would. But then there's that M group that's really, really kind of getting in there. But, you know, that journey for me, you mentioned Bob Lutz, you know, that his, his book, Idiots and Icons, and I've heard he takes, you know, credit for more things than he actually was responsible for. But, you know, he claims responsibility for the 2002 Turbo and, and saving the round all the way it was and, and some other things. And maybe he was, but, you know, you look back at those things, you know, the, the, the Turbo, for example, 2002, and then there was a gap for, you know, the, the 2002 was around for a while and in various forms, TIs and things. But really, you know, you had some other cars and then the E21, which James loves. And then we got to the to the E30 M3, right? And that was kind of the first almost, I know we had M's, right? We had M5s and M6s, but it was like, oh, we're going to do this again. And then they've carried that on. And it feels like they're making more performance oriented cars now than they were before. Um, they are obviously, but where I still get confused though, you know, I saw the other day, it was an X4M competition. I don't understand that at all, right? To me, that's... Somebody in the marketing group is like, let's throw some labels on it so we can get a price tag for it. That's not really a performance. Yeah, we like to call that badge engineering, right? And that's where I was kind of going with this in the sense of the future of BMW in that when one of our members and one of our authors actually wrote an article about this and it was kind of the demise of the M badge. You know, like I don't think M holds as much value as it used to because they'll throw the M badge on anything, to your point, on an X5, on an X2, and you know, and then there's the M235 and the M130, you know, all this stuff, and it makes no sense. Now, granted, BMW is not the only guilty party here. Audi does the same thing. They will throw an S and an RS on just about anything, 
right? It's like, what is going on over there? So there's a little bit of, I think, feel like badge engineering going on in the German manufacturers right now. Maybe they took a page out of Porsche's playbook because they started adding the alphabet after Carrera, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> we get it. But they took that from, from Chevy and, and Ford back in the 80s and, and late 70s. But I guess it makes me just wonder where things are going. But it also raises another question and people don't realize you know, you hear in the news now, even right now, Porsche and Rimac, right? It's a big deal. Like Porsche made a huge investment in Rimac. You know, Bugatti is part of the VAG family. You got Audi, you got Lamborghini, Volkswagen, all these, like, it's now a big conglomerate, right? It's not just Porsche. And to your point, they've really transcended. BMW, people don't realize, bought Rolls-Royce. They own Mini Cooper. They own a lot of other brands in there. And are, you know, those of us that are in the know, we go, oh, X1, yeah, that's a Mini Cooper. That's a countryman with different sheet metal on it, big deal, right? Stuff like that. Or you look at the minis and you go, well, it's a lot of BMW in here, you know, that kind of deal. Do you guys think that was the right move? Like has BMW just kind of stepped to the side and said, oh, we got to innovate by acquisition, right? We can't just do it alone anymore. I think there's a solid core in BMW. Donovan kind of said that as well, I think. And I, I don't think that just because there's a solid core to the company, there's very clearly a group of people in Germany, uh, I'm sorry, in Germany, in BMW, um, in the US and Germany, that are very passionate about the roots of the brand. And, you know, there are some outspoken folks that won't let things go too far off the rails if they can help it. You know, to me, that's part of a solid core. We lament so many things that the reality of it is we consumers, we're not solely in control of. The automotive market is a very difficult market. And to navigate where you're going to drive on a winding road that you've never seen before, you know, it's tough. And you have to be prepared so far out ahead for so many different possible outcomes and shifts of how the industry goes. Just because you do it wrong occasionally, I think you have to be willing to do it wrong so you can evolve and do it right. And I think BMW isn't afraid to, to stick it out there and see if it works. You know, you're kind of to your point before, do we do, are they just throwing it out there? I don't think that they're willy nilly throwing it out there and just hoping something is going to work. I think it's strategic on a variety of paths, many of which they feel very compelled to pursue. I know that they are on this model proliferation, on the, the numerous models they now make. I think that that is very specifically to target a way that other manufacturers that they use as benchmarks have sold cars and they feel like that's an important thing that they'd love to just do it their way, but they're, they're going to have to evolve and, and do some of these other things, but they still have that solid core that is a tremendous number of solid performance cars. So with that being said, and I know people are going to hate me for this. And I already made, I already made the comparison between the E36 and the Miata, but you know, it, there's a lot of truth in that statement, but some of these other brands, specifically German and Italian brands, European, the big brands, they stand on these pedestals of racing pedigree. Let's face it, Ferrari, Mercedes, Porsche. I mean, then the list goes on and on where they have these mountains of awards that they've won. And BMW does have racing pedigree. And we didn't really talk about it too much in motorsport, but I always feel like it's, it's a blip on the radar. And so these other companies, you know, their heritage comes from the racing pedigree. But for BMW, where does the heritage come from? German engineering and tradition. I, you know, I think there, there's certainly um, part of that tradition is racing. I don't think that that's the only focus. You know, let's, we know that Porsche makes performance sports cars. That's what they do. 
And it's no shocker that using their production cars, which is performance sports car market focused, that they have made tremendous race cars. Same for Ferrari. Mercedes rarely does it with their own production cars. Maybe a little bit recently they've dabbled. They'll build something and then, you know, put their name on it or, you know, they, I'm not going to make fun of F1, but, but, <laughs> but it's not, it's, it's not a Mercedes, you know, let's face it. So, but BMW even to your just, point, even, even to your point there, BMW dabbled in formula one. It always feels like they're dabbling in motorsport, right. For a little bit, a little bit in IMSA and then they get out, right. They're always kind of there, but I never feel like they're at the front of motorsport. Like they were for even a minute in Le Mans with the V12 LMR. But again, it's a blip in the radar because they were overshadowed by Audi, right. For many, many years after that. And so it's, it's always like, what's going on guys. Like pick something. I I don't, I I don't think that they are devoted to motorsport at a foolhardy level and not that the others are you know foolhardy in their pursuit but i think there's always a very measured approach with bmw and i think the world and the series organizers know that that you know they're not here to stay they're here to have a program and they put this program together and they run it and they're not just headlong into this thing no matter what happens we're going to have the leading f1 team and they they did it for a while and they were successful and like i said before they they are a car manufacturer they're not a racing car manufacturer and they they need to pivot as the industry pivots and f1 became not the important thing for them to pursue so they stopped pursuing it you can't be afraid to stick your nose out and you can't be afraid to pull it back if you're going to be an agile business so it makes me wonder like some companies like Porsche and Ferrari etc that are at the front end of a lot of these motorsports uh, disciplines that are out there a lot of the technology that they develop they use motorsport to refine and build and and make better and that eventually trickles its way down into the production cars is the same true of BMW because they don't spend let's say nearly as much time there are they using it as you know a science fair project I don't, you know, I don't think it's a science fair project. You know, they they got out of F1 when there was questionable future as to as to what we're going to be doing with internal combustion, et cetera. And then they they started pursuing Formula E, and they've gone after that when they were clearly behind in electric technology, and they needed to get on board and spend more time on that. I I don't think they're behind. I think they're innovative people. I don't think you have to innovate purely on the racetrack. Sometimes the racetrack is also the place to just show the world what you've done is it innovation is it showing the world what you've created and just you know you can't package it in a production car so here it is on the racetrack for everybody to see i like what they've done because i think it's prudent prudent and racing maybe aren't the most compatible things (laughs) um you know they're they're certainly not for the most successful you know they're not for ferrari right nobody would say that their pursuit of motorsport excellence was necessarily prudent but they took a different path and they but they're a different company because of it i i think you know, in this way, BMW has been true to its roots, which is a solid car. It's a performing car. You know, I often refer to it as a, and, and lovingly so, this is a working man's car. This is a, this is a little bit of a blue collar German car because I'm so fortunate, um, you know, from a Bimmerworld standpoint to be in the BMW world because I can sell parts to people that make decisions and then put their hands on those parts when they put them on their car. That doesn't happen in Porsche world and and Mercedes world, at least not to this level. So to those roots, I think the BMW approach has been pretty true. Donovan, anything you want to add before we segue? But I would say, you know, you talk about them being a blip on the radar. I don't think that's totally fair, right? You think about, you know, Mercedes was gone for many years after the Le Mans incident and things, but 
you know, BMW is, is kind of always been there, right? And, and kind of kicking ass when they do. Even going back to 70s, like the CSL cars we talked about, you know, some of the other ones, the, the M3, the LMR, when they come on the scene, it's big. You know, I, I know what you mean about they kind of come and they go, right? I'd love to see, you know, another BMW F1 team or a big, you know, LMP team and, and they'll get back to it. But I think when they do come in, it's big news. And, you know, it's interesting, you guys are making a good point though. I never really thought about it this way that, you know, I think it is absolutely true that Porsche develops the 911 on the racetrack. I don't think BMW does that, right? And I don't know, right? But it, to me, it seems like the other way around. Let's go out and, and test some technology or let's show off what we've done where we're not designing a race car for the street. It's kind of the other way around. So that's, I hadn't thought about it that way. It's kind of an interesting perspective. Which I think is a great opportunity for us to now change gears and talk a little bit about Bimber World since James brought it up here as we were kind of wrapping up our talk on motorsport. So for those of you that don't know what Bimber World is, it is a premier North American BMW performance facility. Bimber World Racing drives development and keeps the company on the cutting edge of BMW performance. They make available for their customers applications for street all the way through professional racing, and they are the most knowledgeable staff in the BMW market. So James, let's talk about Bimmer World as I've kind of set it up for you there and tell us about the origin and the history. You alluded to being in BMW ownership from back in your college days, but how did you get from that to being the president of Bimmer World? Oddly, and I, I figured this out many years later, when you start a business, you are immediately the president of said business. So it, that wasn't that long of a path as you might imagine, because I started my ownership of the BMW early on. We talked about that, the E30 M3 that I started taking to the racetrack. And since I was in college and I had enough money to buy the car, but not to do anything else, I started selling parts from the car back seats. You don't need those on a racetrack, AC compressor. You don't need that, you know, the things out of the car. And so by definition, I was immediately president of Bimmer world. So <laughs> I didn't, you know, didn't call it Bimmer world until maybe a couple of years into that. And it was a way, you know, Bimmer world really is the name of my experience to be able to own, enjoy, appreciate, drive, race, whatever it is, BMW cars. And I'm lucky to have ended up you know, with my nose down in a place that that turned into a business with lots of great people that sells BMW parts to a, you know, a wide range of customer. But it was a long journey of figuring out how to keep a race car on track and, and do the things I love doing with the people I love doing it with. And so it, it just kind of turned into a company, I guess. So for those that don't know, what kind of products does Bimmer World offer? These days, we offer everything. We, we sell less expensive maintenance parts. Yeah, you know, the aftermarket in the, in the way that you know, if, you, if you just need to have your car to get to work, we got you covered. We're cost effective. We sell floor mats. We sell stuff that my mom needs for her car. And then we, we sell racing parts and track parts and you know drifting parts we haven't pursued some markets to the end of the earth but we are you know in in my opinion it's a, it's a very wide range of products for anybody that owns a BMW and wants to get them from a supplier who can back them up with the knowledge on how to use them how to select the right things how to make the parts work in concert for the best possible outcome which you know, as you get more and more into the performance and racing world becomes a more important thing. So for those of us that have been buying parts from Bimmer World, myself included, in every package you get, there's generally a couple things in the box. There's stickers and things like that. But what's the deal with the Haribo gummy bears? Not the gummy bears, right? The Golden Baron. 
So yes. those are the, those are straight from Germany and, and we go to great pains to get them from Germany. The FDA has tried to shut us down before. It's difficult to get the quantity of German golden baron that we get. But no, I just, I thought that'd be fun. You know, I, th- this whole business is the thing I like to do with the people I like doing it with and it's fun and it needs to stay fun. And, and that's just one of those things. Like I've always said to the people in, in our warehouse, you know, when somebody opens that package, it should feel like Christmas morning. So they should get a package that's well-wrapped, that's well-packaged, you know, that just looks like, gosh, that thing I've been waiting for and couldn't wait to arrive. And so it gets there and then, you know, there's more fun inside. It's, you know, there's parts, but then there's also, you know, the stickers, the gummy bears, the gold bear. And then, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was a nice touch. And, you know, it's, it's grown into something I never thought it would because sometimes we can be a slave to the bears. And, and, you know, I, I know when we're out of bears or, you know, when they've, when we've had a shipment that wouldn't get clear customs or whatever, because I start getting hit on social, you know, where are my bears? I didn't get the bears with the last shipment, you know, so it's a thing now, (laughs) but that's all right. It's a fun thing. So was that something like when you were first getting started, you were just like, uh, you just chuck it in the box. Like why the gummy bears is just because. No, not even because I used to get stuff when I was building my car back in the day with from Summit Racing. I used to get stuff in the in the box and stickers and stuff like that. I'm like, this, what's this crap? I don't need this. You know, I don't know. Maybe I turned the corner, but you know, at some <laughs> point, I, it just it became fun, right? It's I, I have no idea why, and I have no idea why they're German. I'll tell you what, I do a lot of my best, most creative work at like 3 a.m. in the morning. And and I don't do as many 3 a.m. work sessions as I used to. But sometimes, especially when I'm writing something or whatever, it just rolls at 3 a.m. That's just, that's the golden hour for me. And I have a feeling that this is one of those ideas that came up as I'm at my desk doing work, dumping out whatever, whatever happens at those hours of the, the night. I, I've had a lot of horrible ideas. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about gummy bears, not, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that we've blown on failed racing programs. But, you know, they, they're all probably from that similar uh, period of, of the evening. And for some reason, it just felt like a good idea. So, I think yeah. it's a great idea. To me, it's that added delight of, you know, oh, cool, I got something special. And you, know, you think about it, package design is really important. Every time you open an Apple product, you're like, wow, this is really put together well. Or, you know, and I love the stickers too. So any stickers you want to throw away, send them my way. And we all have buddies <laughs> that have them plastered all over their toolboxes and everything. There's a home for all this somewhere. So I think it's a really cool. Really Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. What's on the horizon? Is there anything new, anything you want to tell the audience about with respect to BIM World? We just keep growing and we just keep doing what we do. I, again, you know, for me, it's a, it's a lot about being able to do BMW things. I'm working to be able to do more of those things to kind of broaden our horizons. Um, Kevin, our marketing manager came up with the idea. It's like, Hey, we're so focused on this racing world and this performance world. There's a lot of other BMW worlds out there. So we're, we're working to kind of pursue those and enjoy those and participate alongside our customers. I think that's our current focus. I mean, we're, you know, we're working on race cars and new race programs, the GT4 or GT3, I guess, M4 is coming out. We've got this Pikes car that's, that's ridiculous. And that thing's going to, going to keep getting some love. And so there's, there's plenty of projects that we're working on, but, you know, we're just trying to do everything BMW and do it well. And, you know, I think that's our pursuit right now. Right. And you actually brought up a really good point on our previous get together where we talked, you were wearing your PowerFlex hat and not your Bimmer World hat. You guys were getting geeked and getting psyched up to take the E36 to Pikes Peak. So let's talk about that. How did it turn out? Good, the bad, the indifferent. So 
it was good. It was good in that it was a three and a half year project and we finally had that baby. It's an E36 in loose words, but it is an E36 with lots of E36 DNA. It did go up the mountain successfully and quickly, you know, with a project this large in scope. I guess wasn't really a concern of mine because I know that the guys I'm working with, but I was proud to see that happen. It's the craziest car I've ever driven. The first time I've driven it with the big motor, we dynoed it at 1,110 horsepower, but we couldn't put enough weight on the tires to, to keep them from spinning. So we don't know actually how much it made, but we know that we threw a hundred more millibar of boost at it on the mountain and we made more power on the mountain. So we assume it's somewhere around, we'd said initially when we built the car 1350 at, at the crank and you know we're, we're probably much closer to that at the tire right now. So Pike's Peak is this ridiculous event where you wake up at one something every morning so that you can be at, you know on the mountain in line at 3.30 in the morning and you go up to your section in the dark and then just as the sun starts to peak up and you've had your third or fourth coffee, you're starting to wake up a little bit you strap into this thing and get launched like it's a space shuttle. And it's quite the wake up call. And that was one of the most terrifying things I've ever, you know, to get woken up like that every morning, like, here we go in this ridiculous machine. It was nuts, but it was amazing. To get to your point, we finished third in class, ninth overall. We didn't get to run to the top because there was ice on the top of the mountain. It snowed eight inches the night before. It was foggy on the way up. It was an interesting event, but I loved the car. I loved the car I was in. I had so much fun in that thing. and I'm going to have a lot of fun as we continue to develop it for next year's 100th running of that event. So I got to ask, because I'm sure the audience is wondering too, 1300 horsepower, let's just say, theoretically, out of which BMW motor? It's an E36, so it's, you know, has Wait. to be an E36 motor, right? <laughs> no, no, of course not. It's, <laughs> and that's the best thing about an E36. They can be anything. So that's out of a P63, which is the motorsport version of an S63 TU, which is the current and outgoing M6 GT3 motor that we've hopped up quite a bit. So V8, twin turbo, lots of boost. That's gnarly, man. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so any yeah. lessons any lessons learned from that car that's an experiment it's also just throw it out there and show what we figured out show what we can do and we work with our partners on a build like this and we do we do stuff that's it's really hard to translate it into things our customers will do we certainly learn things we've you know we were on a a set of MCS four ways that that's their new damper design. And we got some good experience with those and, you know, had some revisions and so forth that that will serve as well as we, as we bring those to market various things, it, you know, we're, we're not going to put a transaxle in a lot of people's cars. We're not going to put arrow at the, the level that this car has it on anyone's car, but you know, we're, we're going to go to the wind tunnel and we'll get to, we'll get to play with arrow on a project that has the budget for that. And then we'll be able to translate that in general terms to things that we do with customer cars and our own product line and so forth. So there's always learning opportunities and the better you get it translating them to the things that make money instead of just blow money, the more successful we are at our business. In closing, anything else you'd like to add about Bimmer World that you want to share with the rest of the audience? I say it and maybe uh, not often enough. First of all, and the, and the core thing is, you know, Bimmer World is, is our people and, and I love people I work with and what we do. And I love that our customers do as well. I get a lot of great feedback on that. We're all here doing it because we love doing it. And so that's kind of a core piece to me, but I love growing stuff. I, I love just for growing stuff, just for that reason. Just like I want to go fast, just because I want to go fast, because I want to win races just because you should be standing at the top of the podium. It's just, it's, you know, the, the drive to grow things 
but I'll tell you in the, in the world of larger business and private equity and all that stuff, I'm really thankful to have chosen a career that I'm able to still do what I love with people I love doing it with and without any of the BS that seems to, if you're not careful, find its way into to the thing that you like doing and make it not as much fun as it used to be. Thanks. Thanks everybody for supporting us and giving me that opportunity. And I, we get thanks a lot for, you know, the things that we do, but can't thank my staff and my customers enough for really allowing me to do what I do. So. That's awesome. A lot of us are still trying to realize that dream, right? Doing what we love and getting paid to do it, I suppose. But uh, that that's super admirable and very awesome. And congratulations on all your guys' success over these many, many years of being in business with Bimmer World and going from just BMW enthusiasts to, you know, this, this big company and big support system for BMW and BMW enthusiasts. So I do have one kind of pit stop-esque question that I've been holding before we wrap up here, and it's for both of you guys. So I'm going to make this one optional. We ask this a lot. It's the, you know, the island question, we call it, or the, the three-car garage. So I'm curious your guys' opinion, and I've probably asked you both this before on previous pit stops, but just to refresh our audience's mind, you have the option of filling your three-car garage with three BMWs, and it's the only three BMWs you can have for the rest of your life or any three cars and money is no object. So I'll start with Donovan. What's in your three car garage? Oh man, I'm going to say BMW since this is a BMW question and I'm going to exclude anything that I currently own. So I'll go high side. M1's got to be in there just for the collector value. I think Dixie and, a, and an O2 Turbo. I think those are got to be, I mean, and I'm taking the, the collector-ish out of it, right? Assuming they're all equal. Yeah, we'll stick with that. James, what do you think? Yep. BMWs, because that's what we're talking about. I think I'm going to put that 328 in there and I might take it out of the garage occasionally, especially since I didn't pay anything for it. It just transported its way into my three-car garage, which I also don't have, but you know, whatever. There's got to be an E36. I absolutely love them. And since I get to choose whatever I want, I want to take that Chia E36 because I think that's the most gorgeous car BMW made and, you know, of a of an era of the touring cars that I just absolutely love. So the Chia E36 will be in there. And then because we've gotten the opportunity to talk about them so much tonight and a little thumb of the nose to some people out there, I'm going to put a G80 in there because I think they're gorgeous. And I'm going to back that puppy in so that when I open the garage door, all you get to see is the, the grill. And I think you may not appreciate it now, but you're going to learn to love it. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, folks, for more information on BMWs, your source has got to be Bimmerworld. You can find them at www.bimmerworld.com or Instagram and Facebook at Bimmerworld. But if you want to continue this chat or express your opinions, be sure to join Donovan on Garage Riot, the social media platform for petrol heads like you at www.garageriot.com or download the Garage Riot app from the Apple or Google Play stores and sign up today for free. So that being said, both of you gentlemen, this has been a blast. I know you, I gave you both grief. I, I understand both your passion, your love, and your pain for BMWs. And, you know, I can't thank you both enough for coming on the show. I think this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully people learn something along the way. And, you know, if you've got comments, questions, or suggestions, you know where to put them. <laughs> <laughs> Drop us a line on uh, Instagram or Facebook or any of the social media platforms we're on. We're happy to hear from anybody out there. But again, thank you to both of you guys for coming on here. This has been really awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Thanks so much. And, and this is a podcast, so it's audio only. So everybody won't get to appreciate. One of the things that I enjoyed most is every time 
you would say something about BMWs that was negative. I love Donovan's eye roll and then like look up in the corner or whatever. Amazing. So just know that, that you're up against two BMW guys and it's not a fair fight tonight. All right. Well, we'll have you back for the VAG episode then. Then I, <laughs> I can really get beat up on. <laughs> oh boy. And on that bombshell. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization. And our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.